Hey friends, Micah here. Welcome to another special throwback episode of the Lucky Few Podcast. We're still shifting the narrative and shouting the worth of people with Down syndrome throughout the holiday season by featuring some of our very favorite past episodes. And today we are really excited to re-release an interview with Jalandra Davis on privilege and intersectionality and so many important lessons to keep in mind as we celebrate the holidays and head into a new year. One of the things that was special to me about this episode was how we were able to begin a conversation about race that carried over for us as a podcast team into the summer as we saw so much happening around us. This episode originally came out in April and was really formative for me as we entered into June and all of the upheaval after the killing of George Floyd to go back and think about the things that Jalandra had to say to us about privilege and race. And I feel like this episode gave me so much more to work with in my own heart as I was thinking about the issues in our country and in our smaller communities. I'm really happy for us to air it again. And for all of you who haven't gotten the chance to listen to Jalandra talk about these ideas, to hear them and take them to heart. Thank you for joining us, friends. Welcome to the Lucky Few Podcasts. Well, you guys, let's let's jump to it. We're super excited to have Jalandra Davis with us today. She is a writer, a scholar, a lecturer, and a mama living in LA with her son who has Down syndrome. Um, she is the author of the novel Butterfly Jar and has also written several articles on black women's science fiction and has a blog called Warrior Mama written from her unique perspective of special needs parenting as a black feminist. Woo, it's exciting. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Jalandra Davis. Hi, hi, hi. thank you. <laughs> Yay, thank you for being here. We're so excited to chat with you more. Um, before we get started, can you tell our audience a little bit about yourself and um, that you have a PhD, a master's, your own book, your son, tell us all the things. <laughs> um, okay, thank you so much. I, um, I started out as a creative writer. I have a master's in professional writing from USC. Um, and then I went back to school and got a master's and a PhD in ethnic studies. Um, right now I'm teaching at Cal State LA, but this year I'll be starting a postdoc which is something you do after a doctorate because <laughs> wow. there's never enough education. <laughs> so I'm starting a postdoc at UC San Diego before I um, move across the country for my new job as an assistant professor oh, wow. um, at, at another university, at Towson University. Um, so yeah, so I have a son named Shiloh. He was born while I was working on my dissertation. He's a dissertation baby. Um, <laughs> you know, we got a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome. 
um, you know, some medical stuff right after he was born. It was a pretty difficult time. And writing the blog became, I actually didn't start the blog until I think he was already a year old, but it just became an outlet for me. Um, and it became a way to kind of tell the story to family and friends because I kind of dropped off the face of the earth for a little while. And yeah, you know, so it's right now, it's more of a hobby than anything else. But I'm thinking about really, really trying to develop it because I find that people have really connected to the story, whether or not they have um, have a child with a disability. And one of the things that was really important to me is to bring an intersectional lens mm-hmm. to the conversation around disability and special needs parenting and Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um. Can you tell us a little bit about like your actual diagnosis, what that was like for you with the doctors and anyone else and telling your family and your process with that? Yeah, it was, it was pretty awful. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, I didn't really, it, it took a long time and I'm not sure why. Um, it really took a long time for me to kind of reach out and start connecting with other parents who were parenting with Down syndrome. I think we were just in survival mode for the first few months. Um, it, in, it, within me and my husband, there were some definitely differences around processing the information, um, and maybe some denial, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So we didn't have, we weren't in community with a lot of people, you know, who were parenting with Down syndrome. So now that I have more conversations with people, I kind of realized how messed up my diagnosis process was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, it wasn't a formal diagnosis. We, we had the blood test. I can't remember the name for it now, but you know, it's about 98% accurate. Yes. I got Um, that too. Yeah. So we were, we had a doctor switch. I, in, I think it was my 14 week scan. Um, like that 14 week round of tests, um, revealed like, Oh, the possibility of chromosomal abnormalities, but I didn't take it terribly seriously. Um, I talked to a lot of people in my community about it and they're like, Oh, I had that too. My baby was fine. You know? Mm -hmm. Um, and so I didn't take it super seriously. We changed doctors and that doctor, the initial doctor said that the only way we'd be able to confirm it would be through, um, an amnio, amnio, right. Mm -hmm. And so we decided not to do that because there was this, you know, tiny risk of miscarriage, but we decided not to do that. And when I went to a new doctor, that's when I found out about the blood tests, right? And so at this point, I think I was already about 22, 24 weeks pregnant. Mm -hmm. And so I really, really wasn't expecting the results that we got, like took the blood test, because why not? (laughs) You know, it's non-invasive, completely forgot about it. And um, yeah, a nurse from the doctor's office called me at home and told me on the phone. Okay. And I was by myself. So they didn't, you know, cause I've talked to other people and they said they were brought into the office or the doctor called them personally. Nope. It was just like a checklist on her things to do that day. I keep saying, I'm going to write a letter to that doctor's office and I keep forgetting to do it, but I am going to do that one day. Um, yeah, it was like, it was a checklist on her things to do that day. And she tried to rush through it. She said, yeah, you're so your test was positive for Down syndrome. And I'm like, what? Um, and I'm crying on the phone and right. she's just trying to go on to make an appointment for a follow-up. And I'm like, you're kidding me right now. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily my husband works about five minutes away. And so I was able to call him. He was able to come home right away. And we just kind of went to the beach for the day and, mm-hmm you know, just, we just ditched, we just did a ditch day and we went to the beach and we went for ice cream and we just tried to, you know, 
deal with it. But I think there was a part of me that was still in denial. And so we had the follow-up with the, um, I don't remember the name of anything <laughs> from my right. pregnancy. But it's the, um, the specialist, you know, for high-risk pregnancies. Um, I can't remember. Yeah. But we met with the yeah. genetic counselor and the specialist. And um, they, and for some reason, I still thought, oh, we're going to go in there. And they're going to be like, you know what? It's a mistake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and they showed, you know, the genetic counselor broke down, you know, the chromosomes and like explained everything. And that's when it really hit me. Um, So it was difficult. Um, You know, I'm an intellectual. And so I think a lot of um, my motivation around having children was very, now that I look back on it, it was really silly. But, (laughs) you know, at the time, I think I had me, my husband and I are both, we're very smart people. We're very, um, but we're also very creative people. And we, we were both raised in kind of, um, a sort of environment of black practicality, right? Like I came from a background where it's like, you need to get a degree, get a really solid job. You know, that's what you need to focus on. He came from upper middle class black family where it was you know okay you're going to do law or engineering or business you know and so we both felt like wow we're going to give our kids the best of everything we're going to give them the best education and we're going to let them be creative and we're going to expose them to arts and we're just going to have like these these super children Mm -hmm. right (laughs) and so I recognize now how problematic especially coming from my perspective as a black feminist scholar and analyzing Mm -hmm. the intersections of class and race and and disability that that all it was already very problematic but sometimes you don't always connect what you do do as a career Mm -hmm. to your personal life Mm -hmm. and so yeah just to you know have this idea of how I was going to the kind of education I was going to give my children and the kind of you know you know just all of these expectations yes I just had to just sit with that, right? And then before I educated myself more around Down syndrome, there was just this, is he going to be able to understand the books that I, or I I didn't know the gender at that point, but is this child going to be able to understand the books that I love? And are they going to be able to write poetry? And, you know, just all of these things that were like really important to me as, you know. So I think that that part during a pregnancy was actually more difficult to me. But then when I started doing more research and finding out about the medical side, that became the thing that I didn't even care about the, you know, intellectual disability anymore. Right. It was the, the, just the intense fears of what might happen medically. Right. Um, so it was hard. It was very hard. We had to, we postponed our baby shower. My husband had an extremely hard time. You know, initially he was like my rock. But I think that he was in denial too. So once it sunk sunk in for him, we like completely switched places. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So I was also dealing with like the different way we were processing it and feeling like I had to be super positive to kind of counterbalance all of his fear and anxiety. So it was tough. It was tough. And the process really continued even after our son was born. And sure. um, it's even something I think we still struggle with you know, but it it was hard. It was hard. But I mean, once he was born, that assuaged a lot of it. I mean, he is, he was just the most beautiful. I mean, he still is, mm-hmm. um, but I mean, he was just the most gorgeous child. And, totally. you know, Aww. it, you know, I, I've, I've like made my peace with the difference in my expectations and also realized that, you know, 
nothing will, I don't know. I think I needed this experience to, to be the mother. I wonder, cause I do hope to have more children one day. I think I will be better for this experience, mm-hmm. right? Because my ideas around parenthood were, were kind of mm-hmm. messed up now that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like those initial ideas about what I thought parenthood and having excellent children, yes. um, and the, all of the kind of really ableist implications of this, mm. this idea of excellence, right? Um, really ableist, raced, classed, <laughs> you know? Um, so, you know, I think it's been as it should be. Yeah. It's amazing what going, like stepping into this, to this different life can reveal to us about ourselves. You oh, know? Yeah. How much I don't I think that before I became a mom to child with Down syndrome, I would never have said that I valued um, performance and and like mm-hmm. placed value on ability and like intelligence the and things like that in the ways that it was revealed to me because of my grief mm-hmm. that yes. I had to work through and be honest with myself about it and, mm-hmm. and change the way I looked at the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, I have a couple questions ladies. I'm going way off script here. Um, you had said that you and your husband were both raised with this idea of black practicality. Can mm-hmm. you unpack that phrasing for our <laughs> listeners? What that yeah, means? it's totally my own phrase. It's just, you know, so One of the reasons I'm studying science fiction now is that as a young girl growing up, I was really obsessed with fantasy, right? Like I was obsessed with fantasy and fairy tales. And um, I just liked anything that seemed otherworldly or not possible. And sometimes I felt, you know, that coming from, you know, like coming from a really hardworking Black family that just really wanted us to have secure futures, that sometimes I was told, you need to get your head out of that fantasy and focus on the real world. And, you know, that's not something that you, and this, this wasn't everyone. And my family definitely supported, you know, me being creative and the creative writing and everything. But there was also a lot of concern around, you know, she's not practical enough, right? Like she, mm-hmm. you know, you got to make sure you have common sense. You have to make sure you get a good job, mm-hmm. you know, a good solid job, a city job, you know, <laughs> like it was just, you know, wanting, me to be safe and secure, right? right? Mm-hmm. So um, I felt as I got older, I kind of, even though I was obsessed, one of the things I started doing when I was a little girl was writing retellings of all the major, like, Western fairy tales, but I would set them in, like, East Africa or the Abbasid mm-hmm. Empire, you know, I would just set them in, you know, places with brown people so I could create what I didn't see in media growing up. Um, and as I got older, I just, I just moved away from it. Right. And I was like, oh, I think I'm supposed to write realistic fiction. And, and I just kind of pushed away this part of me that was very invested in creating something, an otherwise type of world. Right. Um, so, you know, I just felt like there was this push towards realism. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and this push towards practicality that was partially grounded in the kinds of, you know, hardships that we had experienced, right? Mm -hmm. Like that I didn't have time for fantasy, Mm -hmm. you know, as a, as a little black girl. Mm -hmm. Um, And on my husband's side, I think it it was, it was similar, right? Like his family desired safety and security and prosperity for him. So, 
there are things that I feel like he didn't consider as possible for him, right, because of that. Um, and, and gifts and attributes and things that maybe weren't nurtured as much, mm-hmm. right? And so I think that we have this idea that the way that we would parent would, you know, give our children the ability to, you know, be a doctor, engineer, lawyer, you know, like whatever it was that they wanted to be. But also, if you want to be an artist, if you want to do this, if you want to do this, like, we're going to, we're going to make it possible for you to do all of that, you know, or any of that, right? Like, just to take the boundaries of possibility away, right? Mm -hmm. And so, for us, the Down syndrome diagnosis seemed to be a boundary around our child's possibilities Hmm. right like that's the thing that we saw at first is that they're not going to be able to do this or this or this or this Mm -hmm. or this right um you know I don't feel that way anymore you know but 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 that's what it felt like at that moment you spoke to this a little bit Jalandra um about how you started to unpack uh these realizations in your own work, um, mm-hmm. writing about ableism, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you were an author and a writer before your son was born. You wrote mm-hmm. the bell jar. I mean, not the bell jar. <laughs> the butterfly jar. The butterfly jar before your son was born. Mm-hmm. Years before. Okay. How do you feel like his birth and this, this change for you has affected your writing now? Oh, I mean, you know, I mean, I wrote, I wrote Butterfly Jar before I was a scholar at all, (laughs) right? So there are still, there are things that have nothing to do with ableism. When I look at the book now, I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, like, I still think it's a very good book. And of course, I still encourage people to read it, but it reflects the fact that I wasn't really thinking critically around a lot of issues around, you know, race and class and gender and ability and, um, and all of those things, right? But um, that it's definitely disability has become, you know, I started doing intersectional feminism, black feminine and black feminism, um, probably a couple years after writing Butterfly Jar. I started teaching at CSU Dominguez Hills in the Africana Studies Department. I started out with literature classes, but they soon started having me cover different kinds of courses. So I sort of became a scholar on the ground, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, as I was teaching. Um, and but disability, so I started understanding intersectionality. I started understanding Black feminism and the way in which the history of Black feminism has been a history of analyzing different systems of power, mm-hmm. right? Like the way that race and capitalism um, and gender and all of these things work in connection with each other to create privilege or to create access or, you know, to create our different experiences, right? Um, But I didn't think about ability. I didn't think much about ability. And it wasn't, there wasn't as much of an explicit disability conversation in Black studies or Black feminist studies. So definitely after I had my son, it is something that I started thinking about and started factoring um, more into my work. I still think that there's more room to do more and there's more to be done. Um, But, you know, it's definitely something that has become more central. Amazing. Um, I got the chance to sit down with Kelly Kaufman a few weeks ago and do an interview with her. And we um, specifically talked about um, being a person of color, raising a child with Down syndrome. And Mm -hmm. um, I just would love to hear 
from you what your experience has been like? Yeah, it's been a little lonely. <laughs> you know, I actually did listen to that interview and I started following her and um, joined um, her oh, yeah. group. Yeah, yeah the Black family. It's so exciting because yes. I just don't find, and I'm just like, where are all the Black parents? Like, <laughs> children, like, I just don't. We're members of Club 21. Okay. Um, that's the organization here in the Los Angeles area it's in Pasadena. And um, yeah, it's just, it's just really white. It's just very, it's very, very white. And um, I'm not sure what it is. You know, I haven't yeah. done the research to know our numbers actually are. Um, one of the things I think happens and the thing that definitely happened with us when my son was first born is that I think black families, you know, you tend to turn inward to your family network mm -hmm. rather than seeking like some kind of outside community or resources. Mm -hmm. And I also think that the process the diagnosis. Oh, I didn't feel a need to really go outside, right? So, mm. you know, I remember calling every member of my family when we found out um, our child would have Down syndrome and kind of doing this whole, okay, so here's the news. Pretty much the reaction from my mom was, okay, <laughs> you know, like, it's okay, you know, it's all right. You know, God knows best. God don't make no mistakes. Like, right, you know, like right. that was, you know, the predominant sort of like black way of processing this that I experienced. So there, there wasn't an immediate need to feel like I need to get around, you know, people, you know, but right. as he starts to get a little bit older and I needed to figure things out, I just realized the space is very wide. And I feel like there's, there's a lot of, when I think about intersectionality, right. The intersection of systems. I think that sometimes in the special needs parenting world, we are not thinking about the way in which the systems that impact our children particularly are also intersecting with other systems. So like something like education, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the conversations within like Down syndrome spaces and special needs spaces around education rely on kind of individual advocacy mm -hmm. and the individual sort of resources of families, right? So advocating personally for your child, hiring attorneys, mm -hmm. you know, how to navigate the IEP process so that you get the placement that you want, right? How to get the school district to pay to send your child to this specialized school, you know, like though, yeah. and that's really difficult for me understanding that, you know, I would, is there a way to, of course I want the best for my child, but like, I also want social justice, mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> you know? Well, and yeah. so what happens to the families that don't have the time or the space mm -hmm. or the resources to do that kind of um, individual advocacy. Right. You know, what happens to the children that get left behind? Mm -hmm. If you find out how to get your child into this great school, but nobody, you know, like, right. so that's one of the things that's, it's kind of difficult for me to be in these spaces, not only as a black mom, but also as somebody who considers myself like invested in, like social justice in a better world for all of our kids. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I also want my child to be in the best environment possible. I want to fight for him. And I'm just trying to figure out how do you, you know, <laughs> like I don't want to throw away everyone else too, right? right. Um, yeah. So, you know, that that has been difficult. You know, it's been difficult. And just, you know, there's just things people don't think about, right? Um, right my search for childcare. It's like, I have to choose between, you know, 
finding the best environment for his needs and him being in an environment with other children of color, you know, other black children, black teachers, right? And and it's just an extra intersection and the extra level mm-hmm. that everyone doesn't have to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think about, when I look at some of the literature on Down syndrome and some of the celebration around life expectancy, and this is an example I always talk to my students about when I'm trying to teach them about intersectionality, right? So there's like, oh, okay, well, the life expectancy is over 60 years old for people with Down syndrome, but for, you know, for black people with Down syndrome, right, it's like 30, 35, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, how can we possibly celebrate that, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? And then I looked at some studies. One of the reasons for this lower life expectancy is high rates of infant mortality, right? Like that, that's one of the reasons for the lower life expectancy. So if you truly care about all people with Down syndrome, then the conversation about Black maternal and infant mortality Mm -hmm. will be a part of the conversation about life expectancy, right? Mm -hmm. And it's really not, you know? So like, those are some of the things that, um, you know, some, those are some of the things that sometimes I, I feel just uncomfortable sometimes in the environments. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. you know, <laughs> so I can yeah. understand that. Cause I feel like those questions, I guess, since my, uh, my daughter, she's white, she's a blondie, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and I, but I still feel that sense of loneliness mm-hmm. in a different way being like, uh, mom of color raising a white child you Mm -hmm. don't really see that and then also that added layer of her having down syndrome but also bringing up those different topics sometimes it doesn't feel like within social media because it's not pretty it's not fluffy Mm -hmm. it's not like positive advocacy to other people it feels like it's not welcomed so sometimes Mm -hmm. I feel timid almost like embarrassed almost like is this, oh, well, I guess that's not the fight right now, but Mm -hmm. I have been trying to educate myself more and trying to find my way into introducing, okay, yes, we're advocating for people with Down syndrome um, and going a step further because I feel like a lot of parents or a lot of people within the space, this is their first time. I guess if we're speaking of white families, this is their first time experiencing Experiencing an intersection yes and feeling and those feelings and now they're hot and bothered because they're like oh my gosh we have to stick up for our child you know where it's kind of been ingrained for us at Mm -hmm. since we were born um so sometimes I feel like adding that extra like being an advocate for myself as a person of color within the space feels hard it feels like oh that's not positive oh it's probably then not speaking as a whole I don't know. Have you, have you felt the same way or can you understand what I'm saying? I'm like, I understand exactly what you're saying. And truthfully, I think that the first few years of my son's life, finishing my PhD, trying to get a job, I've kind of not really done it, (laughs) you know? So I haven't, I haven't really, I mean, I've mentioned it, you know, I've had these conversations, like I've, I've, I've brought these conversations up in more safe inner circles or to the directors of organizations, but I haven't really put myself out of out there really to like really trying to intervene because I've been really preoccupied with survival. Right. Um, 100%. And And not really wanting to, you know, not wanting to in the times where I need these collectives and these communities, not wanting to, 
risk getting pushed out of it, I guess. Russell you Feathers, know? no, I get you. I do, no, I get not, you. No, it's not that I assume or think that that would happen, but, you know, you just pick your battles, yes. you know, like as an academic mom and as, a, um, you know, a mom with a child with disabilities and as a, you know, we're in a co-op now where I'm one of not that many moms of color. So, you know, I just find myself in a lot of white spaces mm-hmm. and just, you know, picking my moments, yeah, <laughs> you no, know, like that. picking my moments where I think something needs to be said and just kind of observe it. I yeah. do think it's time to start having the conversation more open, openly, because I think if we think more broadly around justice, we understand that the things we're fighting for for our children if we fight for it in a different way, it also makes a difference for all children, right? Like, Mm. you know, one of the things that when it comes to um, special education, right? And like, we don't want our children segregated in special education, right? And special education has also become a way that Black children, particularly Mm -hmm. boys, have been segregated. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, whether they should have their diagnosis or not, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So inclusive education, like a truly inclusive education, where all children are like learning together and where the curriculum is designed, um, would like at the public school level, right? Like that would benefit, like that would deal with all kinds of inequities, right? Mm -hmm. If we had that truly, like a true kind of inclusive education, right? Mm-hmm. Um, rather than these segregated spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, so just drawing the links, right, between these different struggles and these movements, you know, um, and maybe shifting a little bit away from like individual advocacy to more of a, like, what mm-hmm. does justice look like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, you know, I think that those are conversations that, you know, that we should be having in you know, disability communities, you know, Down syndrome spaces, right? So. Hmm. So, yes. I, I mean, I just, amen and amen to everything you're saying. Um, this is a conversation that we've had, the three of us on the podcast, and that I've, I've had with a lot of people, like, not only people who are white are having kids with Down syndrome. Like, it mm-hmm. is, you know, Down syndrome is not specific to a race. So, why like the social media space is so saturated and um we have some i have a friend who is korean american and doesn't feel welcomed in the space Mm -hmm. and i you know and i feel like i can see it and understand it and also what do we do right Mm -hmm. like what's the next step and i like what you're saying i think that what i'm hearing you say is we need a like a ten thousand foot step or you know like a ten thousand feet view of what's happening rather than the ground level. And I think a lot of people in the disability world, I think Mercedes said this, it's like a lot of people, we can, I can speak as a white person, mm-hmm. you know, I, you don't understand the privileges that other people have withheld because you've always had privilege. And then you have a right. child who has privileges withheld. And then like your justice meter goes up. You're like, this is an injustice to my child when there's so many other people groups who have always had those privileges withheld. Mm-hmm. And so to, to go to that 10,000 foot level, and realize like, oh yeah, there's so much more happening here. Um, I think that even the word, and I'd love for you to unpack it a little bit because you've been saying it a lot, like intersectionality. Right. And I know that that we're familiar with it here on the podcast, but I think it is a word that a lot of white people are like, I don't know what the hell that means. You know, Mm -hmm. like what does intersectionality mean? How how do you describe that like to your students at school? So what I tell my students, because intersectionality discourse is definitely something that I think is, has been misunderstood a lot. 
um, like people think that it's about identity, but mm-hmm. it's not about identity. It's about systems of power. Okay. And it's about the way that systems of power like connect and like run into each other in ways that produce privilege at certain inter- intersections and produce disadvantage, inequity, deprivation, and even violence, right? Um, so you look at systems like like patriarchy. Um, heteropatriarchy is what we talk about because we see pe- patriarchy and sort of homophobia is, inter- is intertwined, right? Um, race, gender, ability, citizenship, right? Mm-hmm. Nation, <laughs> you know, yeah. like these are all systems and how and it, they intersect in a way that certain people within certain conversations become invisible, mm-hmm. right? That often turns to like rights, you know, the rights to choose and the rights for privacy, right? It, it, the, the populations that become invisible are the ones that don't have access to choice because they don't have material privileges, right? So working class women, women of color. Um, so I think that within the disability, like especially the disability parenting world, because there's lots of like, you know, poor working class, people with disabilities and people of color. But I think particularly like kind of in the parenting world and within organizations, like those people who don't have like the class advantage to even be able to like get up and come to these meetings and these events and raise money for walks and, you know, like come to and pay for workshops to learn how to navigate IEP. Like all the people who aren't there in those spaces become invisible. Mm -hmm. Um, So what I often tell my students is that true intersectionality is when you think about the solutions to problems in ways that put the most marginalized, most vulnerable people at the center. Wow. Right. And I think that that's important when we even look at what we're going through now around coronavirus, right? Right. Like you still have people who are out there spring breaking talking about, oh, well, if I'm young, if I get it, I won't die. Right. (laughs) You know, like and not caring about the impact on the vulnerable. Right. So like a a true intersectionality is who is the most vulnerable you look for who is the most vulnerable people who are uh, medically compromised people who are houseless mm-hmm. right like you know people who have pre-existing medical conditions and if you put them at the center like this is who we're trying to protect then you're going to make a world that's better for everyone right you know, like if we could get all of the, you know, like now all of a sudden we figured out how to like put homeless people in hotels. It's like, okay, we could have always done that, right. <laughs> you know, yes. like, and there's some cities that are still refusing, but it's like, we could have always done this, right? Like okay. we shouldn't have to wait for a pandemic. We should, you know, who is the most vulnerable? And if we can center and protect the most vulnerable, you know, I don't believe in trickle down, but I do believe in trickle up, right? Yeah, like. Yes. The, the things that you would need to do to protect the most vulnerable are going to make sure that everyone else like is, is okay. Mm-hmm. Right. It might reduce inequity and it might reduce some people's advantages and privileges, right. but what would we rather have? Right. You know, like, would we rather have a world where a few people have all of this, like, you know, advantage and privilege and like so many people have nothing or a world where like, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. a yeah. few people have a little bit less so that more people could have, have like a chance at life, yeah. you know? And so like, that's what true intersectionality is. This is about identity. It, it, it's the, 
was who's often cited is like the creators of intersectionality theory, even though we could trace it back generations. And I think lots of women of color have participated in creating this idea. But one of the most often cited um, collectives is the Combahee River Collective um, in the 1970s, which is a collective of black lesbian women, black lesbian socialist women. And they said like identity politics for them was about our identity existing at the intersection of race and sexuality and class gives us like a vantage point to where we could see how all of these systems work. And so we're invested in the destruction of all systems. And when like the black lesbian working class woman is free, then everyone will be free, mm. right? Like, so that was like what identity politics was. And we've turned <laughs> it into this whole different thing where it's about like, like if you if you name your identity in the process of advocating for justice, you're somehow pulling a card or making excuses or something. Okay. And that's never what it was about. It's about putting the most vulnerable people at the center, mm. you know? So like in education, if we thought about the children who, you know, have less advantages and privileges and, and who have different ways of learning. Sorry, my son just burst in. Um, <laughs> are you going to, you're going to take the laundry bag? Okay. He just came in and grabbed a bag of laundry. Okay. Oh, good job. Yeah, go um, I love it. Like if we didn't think of, oh, well, we'll just like sit your kid in the back and give him an aid and, you know, right. the teacher has to move on and teach the rest of the class. Like if your child's education was as important as every, if they were put at the center, right. then you would have to put in place for them to learn what everyone else will benefit everyone else. Yeah. If you do, if you do it right. And if you really care, right. Yeah. You're going to take that long you back too. He's got things to do, mom. <laughs> Meeting his yeah. sensory needs. Push yeah, that yeah. laundry basket. <laughs> He's just dragging the laundry bags out of the room. <laughs> <I love it. laughs> um, that's the best definition I've heard of it. It's super yes. helpful. And I hope it's helpful to our listeners to hear it. Um, I, we always say you can't know what you don't know. Right. And mm -hmm. I think that at, like, as a white woman who now has children with disabilities and I have a, a daughter who's black, Right. Um, my world is completely changed and there are, yes. and I'm, per, I also, justice is also very important to me. I'm a very justice oriented person mm -hmm. and I just wish that I knew better before, yeah. you know, like I wish someone would have told me more. I wish that I didn't grow up with privilege, like the, uh, not understanding the privileges that I had and not understanding that I could do more and be better and step in, use my privilege for the good of of um the most vulnerable or or that looked like and so but it's hard to you can't know what you don't know and right. so i'm grateful for your voice because i feel like i would assume the majority of the people listening are white people just because this is the audience that that we're in right now and i just feel like as parents who have kids with down syndrome we are we are rad like we're such rad advocates for our kids we're doing so so much work and we're like in it for our kids. So to also hear that idea of, well, let's look at the most vulnerable, right? Like, let's look at, mm -hmm. let's look at the intersection and know that now we know better. So let's do better. Let we know better. Let's do better. Let's make sure that we're not just laser focused on our one kid or the, the, I, the group our kid identifies with yes. most, like, let's and look at, let's look at those intersections. So I, I, I'm really excited about this conversation. I want to, mm -hmm. I kind of want to do like a Q and a from our listeners and then have you back on. Ooh, <laughs> <be amazing. laughs> hey, sure, no problem. 
it is like an invitation for, for those of us, like Down yes. syndrome is an invitation for those of us who needed to wake up to our privilege yes. mm-hmm. and to, to walk through the door and go, oh, there's a whole world. There is a whole world here of injustice. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't seeing it before. And it, like, do we take that invitation and do something with it? Yeah. Right. And I mean, it woke me up. Um, it woke me up to my class privilege, right? I didn't grow up with class privilege, but I grew into it through education. And I know that I have the ability to kind of hustle and get whatever I want for my kid, you know, because I now have the access to attorneys and I have the access, like, I know I have the ability to do that. So I'm at this like point where it's like, okay, am I going to manipulate that, you know, Mm -hmm. or am I going to, you know, it's just that this Mm -hmm. is, it's just this interesting crossing point. Like, what does it, what will it look like to, to, to try to fight to change things rather than just try to like make it better for my kid, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, my teaching has transformed, (laughs) you know, since Mm -hmm. I had this child, because I think that before I had him, I thought about like disability accommodations just as something that I had to do. Like, oh, okay, I got to make a hard copy of this test. I got to extend the time on this test, right? And after I had him, it was like, you know what? Why have time limits on the test at all? <laughs> like, yeah. why do it like this at all? Like, you know, like everything has transformed, right? Because right. I'm thinking about things from this vantage point that, no, I didn't really have before right before him it's hard too to um think about um changing the world for everybody because mental space and time (laughs) so I feel your tug of war like it's hard okay do I go in this for everybody or just kind of get things done for sunflower in my mind I get stunted and I'm like I don't know I just bow out we're homeschooling (laughs) but not in a bad way, but almost like I'm just overwhelmed. I don't know yet. I'm going to grow into it. She's only six. I'm only 35 as today. Woo woo. I'm still learning. (laughs) I'm growing into this thing. Yes. Shiloh wanted to join us. Hi, bud. Oh my goodness. I had a haircut in about four weeks. (laughs) Right. Along with all the rest that way. (laughs) He is so handsome. (laughs) Hi, buddy. We'll have to put a picture on our show notes so our listeners can see this handsome little guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, you know, we have that conversation all the time. It's difficult. You know, as a critical study scholar, we have the conversation all the time about we don't believe that suburbs should exist, but that's where some of us live, you know? Right. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like in the whole process of creating like the charter school movement and private schools, there's a lot of racism, white supremacy, Mm -hmm. the fleeing from integration. But at the same time, sometimes we're looking for that charter kid that's actually going to give our child a chance, you know? So it's complicated. It's complicated. It's It's super complicated. Yeah. Um, I have one more question and you can choose not to answer it, but if, you had a word of advice, like, hey, white moms raising kids with Down syndrome, it would be awesome if you guys did this. And then like a word of encouragement to women of color raising kids with Down syndrome. Mm. Um, gosh, man. <laughs> I guess, I mean, I guess what I've said already, like I would like, yeah, like I would like white moms to remember like 
you know, I know for a lot of you, this is your first time, <laughs> right? Like dealing with like the idea that there's something that your child might not be able to get or might not be able to have, you know, like this might be your first time dealing with like what I'm calling an intersection for lack of a better word, but it's not the first time it existed, right? Okay. It's like sometimes my problem when I'm having, like if I have conversations with people around like gentrification, like, you know, we all move you know, to different areas to try to create the best life for our family, but don't act like this neighborhood didn't exist before you found out about it. You know, like, I know this might be your first time foraying into like, oh, wow, I have to fight. And oh, there's an injustice here. But this is not the first injustice that's existed. Mm -hmm. And you might want to think about how this might be connected to other forms of injustice. Mm -hmm. And are there ways to fight where we don't reproduce and perpetuate those forms of injustice, right? Mm -hmm. um, those other forms of injustice, right? Um, and for and for Black moms, or um, you know, re reach out and and find other community. You know, I guess I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Everyone has their reasons. You know, I don't really know. I don't know why I don't see as many Black moms involved in some of these spaces. Maybe I just need to try some different organizations, some different events. Um, I've invited people. I have a few people who I link up with at Club Twenty One, and we've been having these conversations. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't know exactly what it is. Hmm. Um, well, I don't know. I don't know what I would say to other people because I don't know what other people's, I don't know anyone else's struggle the right. way that I know mine. Right. You know? Um, sometimes at certain points within this, sorry, he found a noisy toy. Oh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> okay. Sometimes at certain points within this journey, you need different things. Mm -hmm. And I think that there was a point where I just really needed to like turn inward to, to my community. And then there was a point where like, okay, I need, him to meet his peers and I need to you know I need to talk to people who are sharing like this part of my journey you know mm -hmm. so yeah I don't know <laughs> I think it's great I think it's helpful super helpful um Jalandra before we close out would you tell our listeners where to find you we know you have a blog where your mama is that right Yes. And so it's on my website. So the website, because I don't think it's the only blog with that title. So people should look for my website, which is jalandradavis.com. Okay, great. And Are you on I, social media? Um, I'm not a super social media person. I'm trying to do better. <laughs> I'm on Twitter. It's simply Jalandra Davis. And um, me and Shiloh are on Instagram. So Shiloh is Shiloh Akeem on Instagram, S-H-I-L-O-H-A-K-I-N. Um, and I think I'm just Jalandra Davis on Instagram. <laughs> you can follow Shiloh's page. <laughs> um, you can follow Shiloh's page and I post there. And um, and I'm, I am active on Twitter. Cool. Cool. Thank you so much for um, coming on and talking with us. You are amazing and so smart and a wonderful speaker. I just have enjoyed our time. Um, Jalandra, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for putting your voice out there and for the work that you're doing and for sharing with us today. I've learned so much and yes. I really, um, I really appreciate it. And I want to have you back on. So we're gonna make that happen. Yeah. Q&A. So thank, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I was really looking forward to this and it was a great time. Good. Good. I'm glad that I'm glad you had fun with us. We like to think a great time. <laughs> <laughs> But sometimes we're convinced it's just us. I guess. <laughs> <laughs>
All right, friends, we hope you enjoyed that special throwback episode. Tune in next week to hear another one of our faves. As always, we want to give a huge thank you to our editor, Josh Avis, to our producer, Val Schleter, to our sponsor, and to all of you who've shared the Lucky Few podcast with friends and who have listened faithfully and cheered us on. Go out there, have a wonderful new year, and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember that you, dear listener, supporting your loved one with Down syndrome, you are a shout of worth and a narrative shifter. So keep on keeping on. We are cheering for you. Happy New Year. We will be back with brand new episodes on January 19th. Mark your calendars. Bye.